0: You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. I'm going to be reading chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 in the Pew Bible. That's found on page 46. That's Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he would turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am, Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning just want to say thank you to uh, Rob and to the worship team for uh, preparing our hearts and for uh, helping us to worship uh, the one true and living God and to focus on especially on his holiness how appropriate that has been uh, for the text that is before us and I'll just say that um, a good chunk of my preparation for this sermon was spent in suffering from a bug that I came down with suddenly this week. And uh, thank you very much for praying for me, those of you who knew. I'm feeling uh, quite a bit better now, Uh, but it it kind of struck me even just this morning what great preparation that was because I think it's important to uh, preach a text like this out of a, a place of weakness having newly been um, made aware of my weakness, uh, I think puts me in a better position to at least attempt to bring you the word of God from Exodus chapter 3. And Exodus chapter 3 is such a momentous chapter that we're going to have to handle it in two parts. Okay, so next week, Lord willing, we'll look at a a great commission of sorts, the part where God calls Moses as his agent of salvation to to rescue his people out of Egypt but that's going to be part two there there's a very important prelude that we must deal with first and I think it's fair to say that the Lord's pattern seems to be that before he gives a great commission he gives a, a great exhibition if we could put it that way. It's important for Moses or whoever else is going to have the awesome privilege and responsibility of being used by the Lord in some particular way. It's very important for that servant first to be overwhelmed with a vision of the, the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God. As I say, this seems to be the biblical pattern, as far as I can tell. Think of Isaiah's commissioning. The Lord asks in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, who shall I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah readily responds, here I am, send me. But that's part two. Part one is what Glenn read earlier. Well, he read that verse too, but the bulk of what he read was the part one. The only reason that Isaiah was in a place to respond positively to this great commission was because he had just experienced a great exhibition. He was just enabled to see by the goodness of God, God's absolute transcendency, his his sheer power, his superlative holiness. Holy, holy, holy. And where at the same time, Isaiah was able to see his own comparative worthlessness. Isaiah saw his total unworthiness. His, his absolutely need for dependency on the Lord. And then think of the Apostle Paul. That great man of the faith. He is shortly going to be told that he is a chosen instrument of the Lord to carry the Lord's name to the Gentiles, to the kings, to the children of Israel. But first, Paul needs to be knocked off of his high horse. He needs to be blinded by a bright light that's shining from heaven, which was actually a glorious appearing of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. A great sight is a prelude to a great commission. And just to give the the namesake example here, we shouldn't miss the important detail in Matthew chapter 28 that our our glorified Savior appeared to his disciples on a mountain, by the way, where we read that when they saw him, they worshipped him. And only after a, a glimpse at his glory and only after an assurance of his, his absolute authority did the Lord Jesus Christ give the great commission to his disciples to, to go and make disciples of all nations. So that seems to be the pattern. It seems like a person's got to see before they can be sent. And so this morning we'll take a look at the great site that, that Moses is treated to before his great commission that, as I say, we'll plan to look at next week. So this is going to have us focusing today on the first six verses of chapter three, which I'll I'll just admit right off the bat is is not a great place to to have to leave it off. Really, this whole chapter hangs together, uh, but hopefully um, it will serve us well as we as we consider this great site. And we're going to do so under three headings. If you're taking notes, you might want to use these as kind of your main points. We'll see first the run-up, second the revelation, and third the response. The run-up, the revelation, and the response. Let's look first at the run-up. And this this will have us focusing on on verse one. Inherent in, in this pattern of first sight and then scent is the notion of preparation. See, seeing something of the, the glory and the holiness of God is a prerequisite, if you will, for anyone who's going to serve Him or be able to live for Him. It's preparatory. And we're going to certainly see this in Moses' case, but but there's much more preparation that's been taking place in his life, even in the run-up to this great sight that he is allowed to see in chapter 3. Recall the the Moses that we came across in uh, the passage last week in chapter 2 of Exodus. Uh, We came across a man who was 40 years old, um, good-looking, Raised in all of the wisdom and power of the Egyptians. He was mighty in word and deed. Uh, He was a patriotic sort of a fellow. Defender of the lowly. By our standards, he sounds like just about perfect. You know, if you're looking for a candidate, especially a candidate for ministry, that is, it doesn't get much better than that. Great pedigree, strong resume. We were thinking to ourselves, what are you waiting for? Extend this guy a call. You know, let's get him signed. But the Lord didn't exactly extend the call at that time. And so we followed Moses to Midian, where he becomes attached to a Midianite family, a a priest named Ruel, and uh, to his family. He especially becomes attached to one of the daughters. Uh, A girl by the name of Zipporah, and he becomes a father during that time as well. Now, when we catch up with Moses in verse 1 of our passage today, chapter 3, it's now 40 years later. Moses is, at this time, 80 years old. And he's on the backside of the desert. He's keeping watch over the the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. And let's just pause there for a second because maybe you're thinking Jethro. I, I thought his father-in-law's name was Rule. What, who's this Jethro guy? Well, it seems like this guy went by both of those names. And uh, this, when you when you read the commentaries and such, this gives uh, people a lot of problems, it seems. But it, I don't think it it really should. I don't think we need to make an issue out of the fact that Sometimes people have two names, and the, the Bible uh, lists both of those names. This is hardly evidence that the Bible is inaccurate. No, alternate names are very common, both then and now. For example, if you ever talked to my son Job about his uh, basketball team, you'd be left with the impression that, you know, this is a massive squad of about 25 guys. You know, he talks about, uh, he talks about Caden and Brownie and Matt and Charlie and Feynman. But those are just two of the guys on his team. (laughs) Okay, it's all very, very confusing to us parents, but it's perfectly fine. The kids have no trouble with it whatsoever. And actually, in this passage, there's a couple of other examples of alternate names, which don't cause us any trouble whatsoever, Um, Mount Horeb in this verse. That's synonymous with Mount Sinai. Those two are almost used interchangeably. That's a term that's going to be used later in the story so you'll want to make a note of that. And then what about the divine name? Look at verse 4. It says when the Lord, that is Yahweh, saw that Moses turned aside to see God, that is Elohim, called to him. That doesn't need to detain us for a second. There, there's no issue there whatsoever. This is how the Lord refers to him himself in both with both of these terms. And so no problem. And no problem with Jeth- uh, Jethro slash rule. Now it's really interesting to, to see, at least for me, that Moses is engaged in the work of a shepherd here. And apparently he's been doing this for. Forty years, since he first offered to to water the flock for the girls, Uh, he's been keeping watch over that same flock, which has obviously now grown, for something like forty years. Oh, if the Egyptians could see him now! You know, I'm reminded of that movie. I don't know um, if you guys watch this in your household at Christmas time, but it's a favorite in mine. White Christmas. You know, where uh, Wallace and Davis are absolutely blown away to see their old army general working in, a, in an inn in Vermont. He walks in and he's got an armful of uh, firewood. And when they see this, these two privates instinctively drop their luggage and salute him. And uh, Private Davis can hardly believe it. He says, General Waverly, a janitor? Yeah. Never thought I'd make it, huh? Oh, oh oh yes, sir, you could do anything you put your mind to, sir, uh, but a janitor? And on and on it goes, but it's shocking to see certain people in certain positions. And we might ask, well, what would the Egyptians think of Moses now? We have a pretty good guess. Back in Genesis chapter 46, verse 34, we learned that, quote, every shepherd is an an abomination to the Egyptians. Here he is, an an old man, 80 years old. He's on the backside of nowhere. It's just him and his herd of sheep. We're we're tempted to look at this scene and think, what has become of Moses? We're we're tempted to to feel all pitiful here. Think that his best years are behind him. But I want you to understand that the Lord is interested in the opposite question. What is Moses becoming? Not what has become of Moses. What is Moses actually becoming? God is looking at him and thinking, 80 years old, eh? Ah, he's, He's just about ready to do some real kingdom work at this point. You understand that in God's economy and under his wise guidance, these are not wasted years in the least. What what better preparation for the one who is going to be called to shepherd God's people and lead them through a wilderness, by the way, than to learn to be an actual shepherd, to learn to navigate the wilderness. And as we're going to see, Moses' rough edges have been ground off by, by all of these experiences. His, his self-confidence, his reliance on his own resources, the things that, that were so obvious and flawed last week. You, we'll see that there's almost no sign of these things by chapter 4. And this is down to the wonderful work of God and his... Preparation, his slow preparation of his servant. D.L. Moody once made this great observation. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking that he was somebody, 40 years learning that he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. I like that a lot. And I think there's a real lesson in, in here for us, and that is that we ought not to judge the Lord and, and uh, his ways and, and his timing and we're not to judge our circumstances by uh, what the hymn writer called feeble sense. God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways and that is never more true than when it comes to our sanctification. I wonder if you'll agree with me. You know, we understand enough to know that we need to go through some valleys, we, we, we agree, in principle at least, that our growth in holiness requires some some hardship, some heat, if you will. But if we're running the show, if, if things ran according to the way that we would like and that we would figure, we figure that, you know, a microwave could probably do the trick. You know, just hit that, that preset button that's got it built right in, just plus one minute, and we're good to go. But the Lord almost always has other plans. It's, and it seems it's obvious by this point that He prefers to sanctify us in a big green egg rather than in a microwave. Yes, His His ways are not our ways, and. We need to always remember that they're higher than our ways. They're better. They're wiser. And, and we ought to really try hard to remember this the next time that we're foggy about his intentions or, or we're frustrated with his timing or, or perhaps we're, we're leery about our current location. Remember that his ways are not your ways. They're, they're much, much higher. And he is intending to sanctify you. Moses' current location is, according to this chapter, the west side of the wilderness. Wilderness is bad enough, and this is like the wilderness's backside. Okay, whatever, how this is to be interpreted in the text is, basically, whatever colorful expression you're, you're used to using to describe that which is podunk. Okay, I don't know which one of the many that you use, but this is the way that they would refer to it. Um, the, The backside of beyond or whatever. This is where Moses is currently. He's in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Clearly he's in a place that has the vegetation and the water to support his flock but he is very, very far away from home at this point. He's in what people would sometimes describe as a God-forsaken place, except that's not accurate, as it turns out. This is, this, it turns out that this is exactly where God is. And this is. it turns out that this is precisely where Yahweh has designed to meet Moses. And in fact, even now, unbeknownst to Moses, God is, is drawing him to Mount Horeb, which is going to become known as the mountain of the Lord. This is, uh, seems like a nowhere time and a nowhere place, but something big is getting ready to happen. He's about to meet with the living God. So let's look at this meeting, and we'll do so under our second heading, which is the revelation The revelation, verses 2 to 5. I call it that because that's exactly what this encounter is. It's a self-revelation of the living God to his servant Moses. Now, so far in Exodus, something like 400 years or so of, of history has been described. And over all of that description, very little explicit reference has been made to the Lord. Of course, as we've seen, he's been active throughout. Um, he, we saw him, for example, as the cause behind the, the rapid and the strong growth of Israel's numbers. We saw him very clearly in the providential ordering of events, which led to Moses' birth and rescue and upbringing and all the rest. However, I wonder if you notice this, that the Lord has up to this point not taken center stage to reveal his character, to reveal his plans for his people. It's all been kind of back burner stuff. We did learn last week at the end of chapter two that we're dealing here with a God who hears groanings, who remembers the covenant who, who sees and knows people's plight. But this is still a God who is behind the scenes at this point. He's God in heaven, if you will. So we saw that the groanings had come up to him. That's picturesque language, but the, the concept is still uh, intact that he is he's in the heavens. And we're, we're waiting to see if God is ever going to rend the heavens and come down and do something about the situation that causes all of these groanings. And by verse 2 of our passage, the wait is over. Because we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses there on the backside of beyond near the mountain of God. Now, having been through the book of Genesis, we're quite familiar, I think, with the concept of the angel of the Lord. There's been plenty of visits from this angel. The word for angel is messenger, and and so the idea is that this is sort of a, a heavenly messenger who speaks for the Lord, more than that, who stands in for the Lord. So there, there is a distinction between the angel of the Lord and the Lord Himself. Yet, whenever the one appears, you know those distinctions are are very quickly erased. Notice that by verse four, the text simply reads, "God called to him," and in verse six, God is speaking in the first person. So. Whoever the angel of the Lord is, it's clear that he is to be closely identified with God himself. So close, in fact, that it's it's really hard to even distinguish them. And you can easily see, I think, why many commentators, even wonderful good Christian scholars down through the the years, believed this to be a pre-incarnate revelation of the Son of God the second person of the Trinity. Now, personally, as, as appealing as that idea is to me, I, I would love for something like that to be true. That, that would be absolutely awesome. I, I just don't think that there's enough textual warrant to be able to be dogmatic on that point. The point is that this is a self-revelation of Yahweh, and he's using secondary means Even tertiary means because the text says that this angel of the Lord appeared in or appeared as a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, fire is a very appropriate representation of the Lord. It's an image that's often used in in Scripture. We saw this back in Genesis, didn't we? For example, when God enters into a covenant with Abraham. He's represented, God is, that is, represented. Abram, by the way, is passed out on the side. God represents himself by the images of a of a flaming torch, smoking fire pot that walks between the dissected animals. This is, this is the, these are the images that stand in for the Lord, flaming torch. And then later in Exodus, the Lord is going to lead his people, you know this, by night as a pillar of fire. Furthermore, in Exodus chapter 24, at this same mountain that we're at this morning, we're going to re- read that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. On top of that mountain, in the sight of the people. That's what they saw when they looked up from the plain. They saw the glory of the Lord like a devouring fire. Both Deuteronomy and Hebrews declare that our God is a consuming fire. And th- the symbolism of fire communicates so many things about God it, it, it communicates his power, his purity his light, his glory, his wrath, his holiness. I could go go on and on here. And we sung about some of these in uh, the songs that we've sung this morning. Yes, our God is a consuming fire, but this is what's so weird about this particular revelation. What Moses saw was this fire was in the midst of a bush, which was just your ordinary run-of-the-mill, scrubby little desert plant. Traditionally, this is thought to be a, a bramble bush, but it's certainly something that ordinarily would be reduced to ashes in minutes. You think about the, how dry it is out there. If, if any kind of desert plant ever came into contact with fire, it would be gone. It would be consumed in a minute. But this one seemed to be doing just fine. Moses is a seasoned shepherd, and in 80 years, he's seen his fair share of bramble bushes. And he's got plenty of experience with fire, you have to believe. But he's never seen anything like this. As he describes it in verse 3, this is a great sight indeed. And, and Moses determines that he, he's got to check this thing out. He wants to investigate why this bush is on fire but not consumed. Incidentally, many people since Moses, following in his footsteps, have, uh, shall we say, turned aside to, to see why this bush might be on fire but not consumed and uh, I'm speaking about liberal scholars that have tried to to make sense of of this story in scripture and if if you read some of these people you'll come across lots of uh, interesting explanations for what Moses saw that day. Um, You'll come across explanations that that say well this was a certain kind of desert plant that excreted oil and in the hot sun you know these were known from time to time to spontaneously combust and so that might have been what was going on or or maybe this was a certain desert plant that had very bright and colorful leaves and and Moses must have just kind of caught that those leaves gleaming in the in the sunlight as as it bounced off of those bright leaves at just right angle or whatever. There's a variety of very rational, naturalistic sorts of explanations why this burning bush uh, could, could be described as it was. But they all have a couple of things in common, if you ask me. First of all, they require us to believe that Moses is a complete idiot. Okay. And that, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. We, he's, he's one of the most educated men that the world has ever seen. Second, and here's the more important thing, these are all unsuccessful attempts at taming God, at seeking to get out from the very clear implications of his self-revelation. That's what anti-supernaturalism does. It, it, it tries to tame God and put him in a box and says, no, he has to behave like, like this. And the whole point of it is that God is so high and so holy and so powerful that he doesn't have to behave in any way that you think he has to behave. The point is that this, and whoa, if, uh, if, liberal scholars are tripping over the burning bush. Man, are they going to have some trouble in a few chapters here. But the point is that this great sight was supernatural and there's no getting away from that. And it, it seems clear to me that all of this was designed to get Moses' attention. To get him to turn aside for the pr- purposes of a fuller revelation that could be made to him. Verse 4 says that when Moses turned aside to look, that's when the Lord God called to him out of the bush. He calls Moses, Moses. And the doubling there indicates not just the urgent nature of this encounter, but also the the personal nature of it. This, This must have been something for Moses to be called by name. This is a God who knows him. Intimately, this is a god who formed him in his mother's womb, who guarded him while he floated in the Nile. This is the god who has guided him every step of the way, and and there's something, wouldn't you agree? There's something so inviting about such a call. I think fire is the the perfect symbol for that idea as well. I know personally, uh, I. I can speak for myself, but I think I can speak for some of you when I say that there's, there's almost nothing that draws me in more than a campfire. You know, it's not just, it, it's not that it's just warm and inviting and cozy. It's, it's almost mesmerizing. I can stare at a fire for hours and not be bored at all. And yet we know the danger of fire as well. You can't get too close. You can't get too comfortable. You can't let your guard down or there's going to be painful consequences. In the same way, though Moses is is drawn towards and called towards this burning bush, he needs to hear these instructions. There's two of them. The first is, don't come near. It's true The the fire is not consuming the bush, but it would be a dreadful mistake to determine for yourself that it is, shall we say, a friendly fire. It would be a devastating mistake to make to, to figure that this fire is harmless. One thinks of that famous passage from the Narnia Chronicles when uh, Mr. Beaver is telling the kids about Aslan, the lion, the great lion? Ooh, says Susan. I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So it is with our God. Good, but you wouldn't exactly call him harmless. One one does not simply waltz into the presence of a holy God, especially with all of our sin and our guilt, with hands and feet that are dirty from our depravity. So this is tied in with the second commandment, which is take off your sandals and your socks. You've got to be barefoot for this reason. And God gives the reason. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. By the way, this is one of the earliest uses of the word holy in Scripture. We encountered it first in Genesis chapter 2, where God blessed the seventh day and called it holy. Here, the ground is called holy, Because it's carrying the presence of the holy God. And that word holy is is so pregnant with meaning. But as Rob explained a a little bit earlier, it means, at its most basic level, it means separate. It means other. The holiness of God refers foundationally to his separateness. In time, in space, in character, in behavior, his absolute separation, separateness from his creatures. There's a, you understand that there's a huge difference between a holy God and his fallen creatures. And the command that comes to Moses and comes to us is to, is to honor that, that difference and to indicate that separateness by the way that we behave and by our posture and, and by something as simple as taking off your shoes which in this time in this place even today in Eastern culture in uh, Canadian culture for that matter it, it, it's it's a very important thing to take your shoes off when you go in someone's house yes but worship don't come near take off your shoes that's what's necessary if you're going to be confronted with a, a holy God. And I don't think I need to belabor this point that these kinds of commands fall largely on deaf ears today. Not just among pagans, but among, among um, professing Christians. Yeah, it's, cl- it's obvious. That, that's an obvious one, that unbelievers dishonor and, and treat as unholy the name of God. And they blaspheme and, and curse, all, use his name in vain all day long. That's, that's easy. But what about professing Christians? What about the people who claim to be children of God, whose lives and whose dispositions don't, don't carry at all the mark of a people who have been in the presence of a holy God? We're, we're told to come to church, you know, just, just as we are. And in, in most contexts, that means, like, you can, you can just come however you're most comfortable. In your pajama bottoms, if, if that's your, you know, your deal. If, if that's where you're most comfortable, that come. And I get, I understand why appeals like th- that are made. But surely we're missing something massive about the holiness of God. And about our right recognition and what that might require of us. For, forget coming as we are and forget staying as we are. What we desperately need is to be changed in the presence of this holy God. I'll move on in, in just a minute here. but But I want to just kind of call out what you might be feeling right now. You know, we've been talking about singleness and dating and stuff like that in Sunday school and These are heady topics, to be sure. These are complicated subjects, although sometimes we overcomplicate it. Like, for example, if you're here, here's, let me make it simple. If you're a single guy and you're wanting, you know, to marry a godly girl, I happen to know where a whole bunch of them, a whole bevy of beauties are going to be on February 14th. If you show up to that address with some roses, I uh, no these are these are complicated. You know, navigating the whole dating scene. I'm I'm so thankful that I'm I'm past that by the grace of God at this point. But you know, because you know, when you're interested in a girl or in a guy. It, um, whatever the case might be, you're naturally wondering if that person's interested in you. And there's nothing more frustrating than mixed messages, right? When mixed signals, you know, one day it seems like he's so into you, and and the conversation's great, it's almost flirty, just the right kind of flirty, but then the next day he ignores you. And that's what's so hard about de- you know, that whole scene, the, the push and, and the pull. And there, if we're being honest, there's kind of that feel here. Mo, God draws Moses in and then tells him to come no further. God, God's holy, he's other, he's, he's separate, yet here he is. Our God is a consuming fire and you better not take a step closer Yet here's this dry bramble bush unconsumed in the fire of the Lord. What, what's going on here? Is is the Lord just playing games with us? No, this is exactly who he is. And I think it's best if you just kind of revel in the paradox of all of this. He he is high. And holy and transcendent. He dwells in inapproachable light. Yet, at the same hand, he draws near to the humble. He is so righteous and so just that he can't even stand to look upon sin. And sandals that are stained with with the dirt of this world need to be removed. Yet, sinners are not consumed. What, what we're getting a, a glimpse of here just a glimpse is not just the holiness of God but but the the grace of God a grace that's seen most clearly and most fully in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, we I love that we we sang a song today by uh, Mark Altrog, who's Um, a wonderful modern hymn writer, and he's written another great song called In the Presence of a Holy God. And here's verse 2. In the presence of a holy God, there's new meaning now to grace. He took all my sin upon himself. I can only stand amazed. Or what about this one? I think you know this one. Who else can rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites him to call invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. Only a holy God. Remember this great sight is just a prelude to a great commission. This holy God is getting ready to announce his glorious salvation. He's about to rescue his people from slavery. He, through his servant Moses, is going to free them, but free them for a very specific purpose. It's so they might worship and serve him with gratefulness and with gladness. He's going to rescue them so that their lives are going to be a testimony to his holiness and to his glory and to his goodness. Now, uh, speaking of the right response, let's just turn to that as our third and final point. The response, I'll have you look at verse six. This is where we see it especially, though not exclusively, that when Moses experiences all of this, you know, we're wondering, okay, what, what is the, the response? And it's this, that when he, when all that he sees, combines with all that he hears, and especially it seems um, at the point that God reveals himself as as the God of Moses' ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses' response to all of this is he hid his face. And he tells us the reason why. It was because he was afraid to look at God. And I want to suggest to you that fear is exactly the right response to such a great sight. When we rightly and and fully perceive the holiness of God, it's inevitably going to produce fear in us. It's It's going to result in us having a holy reverence we will certainly feel, if not cry, something similar to Isaiah when he says, woe is me, I'm I'm undone. It's similar to the response of the angels even. And if we had the wings to do it, we would cover our eyes and our feet and our mouths. In chapter one of his institutes, John Calvin explains, quote, hence the dread and amazement with which, as scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure, so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold of them, nay, that they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated, the inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched, and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Yeah, exactly. And it's exactly this kind of humble recognition that is a prerequisite for any who would be used by God. We need to be able to confess at least two, I think, three wonders the wonder of his majesty his holiness his glory and the comparative wonder of my unworthiness and then the wonder of redeeming love how how that separation how that gap can ever be overcome it's only overcome In the gospel. It's only overcome by the person and work of Christ. There's another response of Moses. That's worth noting. Even though it comes a little bit earlier. I'm thinking about verse 4. When God calls to him out of the burning bush. Moses. Moses. What's Moses' response? Here I am. It's the response of readiness. Obedience just like on the, on the tip of your toes, ready to jump into action. It's the posture of a servant with a master. And I wonder, does, does that describe your response today? And I suppose I should first ask, have you caught a vision of the absolute holiness of God? As you're confronted with who God reveals him to be in the word and in the prayers and in the praises of his people, have, have you been given eyes to see the absolute separateness, the transcendence, the holy otherness of God? And then, has it humbled you as it should? Do you, do you instinctively want to cover your, your eyes and put your hand over your mouth? Does the holiness of God make you tremble? Make you want to hide? but then when you see that this holy God is actually intent on saving sinners like you and like me, does it make you want to come out of hiding? When when you see justice and mercy kissing at the cross of Jesus Christ, does it make you want to just (coughs) shout for joy? And then having tasted his goodness and his grace, Doesn't it make you want to be holy even as he is holy? And then doesn't it make you want to obey him and serve him with all that you have and all that you are with your entire life? Doesn't it make you want to go and proclaim his great salvation to the nations? The news this week out of uh, Wilmore, Kentucky is that there seems to be a real work of the Spirit going on at Asbury University. As of this morning, a chapel service that began on Wednesday morning has not yet ended. And uh, hundreds of students and now thousands of others are engaged in this kind of ongoing prayer and confession and, and worship. And we praise God for what seems like revival taking place in our in our time, and we pray that it continues and, and we beg the spirit to just move all over our desperate country. We we pray that the spirit would move in power right here in our own midst. But wherever true revival has broken out, one of the distinguishing marks has always been that the spirit grants people to see in a new way. And in a lasting way, the absolute holiness of God. And at the same time, just almost by virtue of the, the stark contrast, people are made to see their own absolute unworthiness and total dependency. There, in revival, there's there's a holy fear and reverence that's produced by the Spirit that results first in humility and in brokenness and then it gives way to consecration and obedience and boldness. There's a desire to go forth and share the wonderful news of all that God is and all that he's done. The point is that people are changed forever by the presence of a holy God. May it be so with us. Amen. Amen.